thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Uh, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And so, if, yeah, if I've never gotten the opportunity to meet you, I'd love to connect with you after the, the service. And so this morning, um, it's my great joy as well to open up God's Word. Uh, we are in this series called Witnesses, a journey through the book of Acts. We're going to get into that in just a moment, but just wanted to make sure that uh, you're in the loop, that you're in the know on something that we've been doing the first part of the year. And last Sunday was a commitment Sunday for something we called the Mishpot project, all right, and it was an opportunity for us to serve both Orlando Children's Church, which you heard about, as well as Samaritan Village, which is this great organization that uh, helps women who've been rescued out of human trafficking, and they are able to go and to live in this particular home and to get all sorts of uh, counseling and rehabilitation and just to be loved on and cared for for 12 to 18 months, but it's, there's an expense that comes with that, and so uh, you guys rallied to that cause, and we had this great opportunity for a three-to-one match from an outside donor, and so our hope was to raise $12,500, and that would become $50,000 to be distributed between those two organizations. And so it's my great joy to report that we hit our goal, all right? So uh, very awesome. So we can clap for that. It's a good thing. Yes. So, so thank you for participating in that. It's a very practical way. When we talk about being the church, the church is simply is more than simply just gathering on a Sunday, as important as this is. But the church, we're called to, to bless the community, to love the city that God has placed us in. And so thank you for participating in that. And if you're unfamiliar with, that's a strange title for a project, Mishpat is this Hebrew word for justice, to bring a right ordering. And so we believe that we get to partner with these two organizations that are seeking to bring that, that Mishpat, that right ordering, that sense of justice in our community. So thanks for being part of that. So I want to invite you right now to turn to Acts chapter 15 as we make our way through the book of Acts, the big idea is that we get to witness how Jesus is building his church. Sometimes the book of Acts can be thought of as like, what's the story now of the church? Like we heard about Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now we get to hear about the church. But the reality is it's still about Jesus and how he's working in and through us, empowered by the spirit to build the church. And so I wanna invite you, Acts 15, we're gonna look at the first 29 verses. So if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't, there's some paperback ones on the back table. You can get up at any point, get one of those, and that's found on page 1023. Additionally, a great resource is to, if you take your phone out, you can go to cpwp.life. Swipe over the very, the second card that you'll see is message notes, and anything that's up on the screen this morning will be there. There's space. You can actually take notes. You can email them to yourself afterwards. Even if you're in a community group study, uh, this week can be a helpful resource to go back to and remember some of the things that we talked about here this morning. And so we're going to read this in just a moment, but I want to start by asking you a question that when you see it up on the screen in just a moment, it'll be like, well, that's kind of an odd question, right? And the question is, is this, is when should we fight, okay? Um, now, I don't mean like a date on the calendar, and I'm not asking you to engage in, with me in a fight. It's not like, hey, I've got some issue with you. Maybe you have issue with me. I'm just not unaware of it. But like, when should we fight? I don't mean it in that sense, but when are we called to Engage. When are we justified in fighting? When is it necessary to actually fight? All right. Now, some of you maybe are just been you're hyped up. You've been looking for an opportunity to fight. Maybe you're you know a provoker, right? And you're just like, yep, fight or flight. I know nothing of flight. It's only fight all the time, right? And so maybe this is like, yeah, this is my kind of question. I love this church. Where's this been my whole life, right? Or some of you are like, no, avoid conflict at all costs. I'm just going to, you know, like consummate peacemaker. I do not want to engage in, in that at all. I don't know where you are on that, that spectrum. But we have to acknowledge this. At some point, there are moments when it becomes crystal clear that we're called to fight. 
this happened. You may be familiar uh, with this. There's a guy named Travis Kaufman, all right? About a week and a half or so ago, he's a man who lives out in Colorado. Maybe you heard this particular story. Uh, he decided to go out for a trail run. He decided to go out and jog, all right? And some of you are like right there, like, yeah, dude, that was your first mistake, jogging, right? Like, just don't do it, avoid it. But apparently, this is something he liked to do. And so he goes out on this, this trail, all right, in Colorado, and he's out for a run. He's enjoying God's beautiful creation. And then he hears something, all right? Um, and he begins to hear some like twigs snapping and the leaves rustling. Um, and he looks behind him. He says, at first he thought, well, it's probably just like a squirrel or something. But he's like, that's a little loud. And he turns around um, and to see one of these. He sees a mountain lion, all right? That's not the exact one, I don't think. I wasn't there to photograph it, right? But uh, he sees this particular mountain lion. And so he remembers what people tend to tell us to do when we see some sort of large animal. If you've ever had that encounter, make yourself large and make lots of noise. And so he said he threw his hands up in the air and he started yelling and screaming and, and that thing just thought, lunch, okay? And so it charged after him and in that, that moment, he found himself wrestling. And the question then wasn't, you know what, should I fight or not fight? What do I do? You know what, maybe I'm just going to let this thing gnaw my arm off as it latched onto his, his arm. That was not. He got great clarity in that moment when he realized this is life or death. There was no part of him that was like, ah, eh, maybe not. Maybe I wasn't clear. I didn't ever told the mountain lion that he shouldn't gnaw my arm off, right? Like, maybe that's on me. Like, there was none of that that was happening. In that moment, this lion, this mountain lion had attacked him, all right? And so they began, they literally tumbled down this hillside, um, and he is trying, he's punching the thing, he's trying, it will not let go. He described it later, he did live, just so you know, all right? Um, as just hearing the bones crunching, the tendons being cut through, I mean, this thing is chomping down on his arm, and it it will not let go. So he's beating it. He grabbed a rock. He was trying to hit it. No success there. And eventually, he's able to somehow, all right, pin the animal down, all right? So this guy had some adrenaline going, I think, at this point. And he was actually able to, either his foot or his knee, I've heard different reports, but he was able to pin it down by its neck and just choke the thing out until after a couple minutes, his arm was released because the animal had died. Like, he cut off its air supply. He choked it out, and there he secured victory. He secured life for himself. And so in that moment, then he had like three miles to run back for help, all right? So there's just a whole crazy story. But I tell you that, all right, because there are moments in the life of the church and as followers of Jesus where we don't sit back. There's an opportunity to actually engage a calling because our life or death matters. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5 uses this imagery. It says, be sober-minded in describing the enemy. Like you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are engaged in a very real spiritual battle. And so Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that there is a very real enemy that doesn't want you to worship King Jesus, doesn't want more people to worship King Jesus. And as we've been studying in the book of Acts, as the church is spreading and it's growing, the enemy is actively at work seeking to bring dissension, seeking to tear apart that which is beautiful and flourishing and seeing more and more people meet Jesus. 
And so what we're going to look at this morning in Acts 15 is this fight that takes place, but it is a necessary and it's a needed fight because the enemy is on the move. He is on the, the prowl and he is seeking to devour this new church by bringing confusion around matters of the gospel. He's seeking to bring confusion about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so what we're going to see as this gets going, we'll look at the first five verses together here in just a moment, is that there is this debate that takes place. There is a fight. There is Paul and Barnabas and others who are, at the end of the day, willing to say, listen, we can't fight about everything, all right? We're not called to fight about everything. We need to love and care for one another. But there does come a moment when the truth of the gospel is at stake, when the very heart of the Christian mission and identity is at stake, that that thing needs to be choked out. Like, that needs to be put to death. We cannot actually stand for this misrepresentation of the gospel, And so they engage because they know that there's an enemy that is seeking to bring all sorts of confusion. And what was true a couple thousand years ago, I think we're going to see it's true in our day as well. That in every generation, there tends to be new things that come up. And it's like, oh yeah, you can talk about Jesus and his grace and his mercy and all that. But you need to make sure you have this thing figured out over here. So let's look at what this debate is about a couple thousand years ago, and then we'll bring that into the present day and maybe think through, okay, what does this look like today? But Acts chapter 15, I'll read the first five verses. It says this. This is after Paul and Barnabas have returned from first missionary journey, all right? They're back in Antioch, and it says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Just as an aside, this issue is about the Gentiles becoming Christians. And I love that we get this little anecdote like, hey, okay, we'll go have a debate. And on the way, they're just telling more people about what God's been doing, all right? So it's either passive aggressive or just plain aggressive, right? They're just like, hey, we just need to let people know what's happening. And so we see that, all right? And it tells us in verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so right out of the gate here, we see that there is a debate that is happening as the church is spreading. It started in Jerusalem. Jesus said this back in the beginning of Acts chapter one, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, okay? So it started in Jerusalem with the Jewish people, but it's beginning to spread. God's intentions from the very beginning have always been for more and more people to know him from every tribe, tongue, language, ethnicity, culture. It wasn't meant to just stay with one people. In fact, God raised up a people for himself in order that they might take this message out. And so the Jewish people had a particular role, a blessed role, but it wasn't meant to just stay there. But as people then begin to meet Jesus, it starts to raise questions because the Jewish followers of Jesus would have known still the Old Testament and the law. Maybe you've been like me, I'm in a Bible reading plan at the moment, right? And so I just made my way through the book of Leviticus not too long ago. There's a lot of laws in there, right? There's a lot of detail about sacrifices and and all of that. And so they would have had that whole upbringing. 
But what it tells us in this, and it's kind of like what to do with that, it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, which I think is sort of polite churchy language to say, like, this was a big deal. Like, there's a fight that is brewing, all right? And they got to figure this out. Because at the end of the day, here's what I want to put before you, all right, is that there is this movement that's circulating, and if it gets hold, you think of that lion that was going to get hold of this man's arm and literally wanting to rip it off and to bring death and devastation and destruction. There was a movement, though from many people's perspective it was well-intentioned, if that had gotten hold, it would destroy things. It would destroy this work of the gospel. Maybe a way to think about it is this, that what you have being represented here is some religious math, all right? Uh, not all math is from the pit of hell, but this particular math is, okay? And this math goes something like this, that it is Jesus and his grace plus circumcision that actually equals salvation. And so you had these Jewish followers of Jesus, all right, who actually, they did believe, all right, but they came on the scene and they're like, okay, all you Gentiles, all you non-Jews that are being converted, here's the deal. Thank, thankful, you know, you got to thank Jesus for who he is, but at the same time, you got to make sure that you're following the Mosaic law. And so even to say circumcision was kind of an all-encompassing term to be able to say, hey, are you following the law here? And you need that in order to be saved. It's not living this way, it's just in a response to God's grace. It's like, no, actual salvation hinges on whether or not you have accepted Jesus plus these things. And that sort of math, that equation fits nowhere in the scriptures, and so there's this debate then that begins to take place. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write about this issue in another book of the Bible. All right, it comes up in a number of different places. It comes up in the book of Philippians. It comes up in the book of Galatians. Let me read to you one particular verse where Paul is dealing with this. So apparently this issue doesn't go away, that there are people that come in and say, you gotta add something to the work of Jesus. And in particular, because for the Jewish people, this marker of their identity was the males being circumcised as young boys, as these infants, all right? That was this marker. And they're like, you can't be in the family of God unless you've had this done to you. And so Paul says these words. If you ever wonder if, if Paul got cranked up, I think you got some evidence right here. Galatians chapter five, he says, I wish those, he's talking to a group of people, about a group of people that are promoting Jesus plus circumcision. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. All right, I'm not gonna go into all the detail of circumcision, but basically what he's saying is like, oh, you, you think that's a big, big deal? Why don't you just take things further, all right? Like, I wish you would actually go all the way, is what he's talking about. I mean, that's some aggressive language here. And because Paul understands that you can't add anything to the gospel. I don't know what kind of environment maybe you grew up in. Maybe your understanding of, of church is, yes, it's about Jesus, but then I've gotta do a bunch of things in order for God to be happy with me. And if you brought that in here this morning, you're battling that, or you think that's what Christianity is about, and you've actually maybe even rejected it, like, I'm glad you rejected that, because that's not the true gospel. The true gospel is it's about Jesus and his work. It's not about what you and I do. Our contribution to this whole thing is our sin. And thankfully, Jesus took that, and he nailed it to the cross. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So there's now, from this debate, there's this defense that needs to take place. And so look with me. Uh, we're going to look first at the Apostle Peter. As they travel down to Jerusalem, you can imagine there's this, there's this council that's been called. You have this group of people that are going to gather. And like, we've got to figure this out. Because one of the things they do understand is like, hey, we actually are brothers and sisters. We're in this family together. We've got to figure out how to, how to love one another. We've got to figure out what is actually ultimate. What is the truth in this situation? 
And this is a big deal. I mean, think about it for a moment. The apostle Paul and Barnabas, they are willing to leave what had been a very fruitful ministry to go down, to sort of take this time to travel down to Jerusalem, to actually engage in a gigantic committee, all right? Ever done any committee work? All right, I don't know anyone that's like, yay, I love it, right? All right, they're gonna give up time from fruitful ministry to go there because it is so important. They must get this right. If they don't get this right, the church goes off on this really bad direction and ceases to be the church that Jesus called us to be. And so look with me at verses, we'll pick up in verse six, six through 11 for Peter here. It says, so the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, then Peter stood up and said to them, you gotta love Peter here. He's the guy who's like, all right, enough. All right, I'm gonna stand up, I'm gonna say something. He never lacks for, you know, just a willingness to kind of go first oftentimes, right? So he stands up and he says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What he's referencing here is we looked at a number of weeks ago, but it's Acts chapter 10, where Peter is called, he is commissioned by God, this vision that he gets to go and to preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles and to welcome them in. And he says this, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And verse nine, this is just an amazing statement. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter gets up in front of this crowd. There's been debate. There's going back and forth. It's like, how do we handle this? Do the, do the new Gentile, like the converts, do they have to follow any of the law? Do we just throw that out? Like, what's to be done with that? And so Peter gets up. He's like, I got to bring some clarity here. Let me talk to you about what ultimately matters. And so he gets up and he says, in God, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, we can read that. And maybe it stands out to us like, oh, that's pretty cool. But this is such a loaded statement that we have to understand the cultural context. For, for Peter to get up and to declare this truth was revolutionary. Because here's what Peter would have known in his upbringing. Good Jewish boys were raised to every morning say particular prayers. And as part of their regimen, as part of their liturgy of sorts, part of their, their habit, they would get up and they would pray. And one of the things that they would pray is, God Almighty, thank you. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. Now, we don't have time to talk about the woman and the slave part right now, but just think about that first component, right? He's thanking God. This would have been Peter's upbringing. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. They would have known separation. They would have known distinction. They would have known all those things. And they wouldn't have just known it. They would have celebrated it. They would have thanked God for it. They would have reveled in it. Their identity is tied to that. And now Peter's the one getting up and saying, listen, there's no distinction. If you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus, all right, this dividing wall Paul would talk about in Ephesians has been obliterated. It's gone. There's one new man now. And he says they've been cleansed, what? 
through their good works, through the things that they did, through circumcision. No, they've been cleansed by their faith in the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. In fact, if we go back to the sort of math equation, all right, instead of religious math that says you gotta do this, it's Jesus, but you gotta add something to it, Peter gets up and says, I need you to know this, that it's grace plus nothing equals salvation. That's what he's declaring here. You wanna have a gospel mass, a gospel formula, one that'll actually bring life, is we continually come back because Peter and Paul and these others would argue for this to help set this in. Now listen, the church has veered off course from this. That's why there was a reformation and all of that stuff historically. But there's this call here that we've gotta keep this central. And when the enemy wants to use the tactic to get us to think that we need to add something to it, that needs to be choked out. That actually needs to be put to death because that is not from God. Grace plus nothing is what brings salvation. You and I don't add anything to it. We can't save ourselves. It's not us even taking that, you take that mountain lion image. It's not like, well, as long as you wrestle it down. No, no, no. Like Jesus came and fought for us. That's the picture here. The storyline of the scriptures throughout is we were dead in our trespasses. Dead people don't contribute anything. They don't be like, oh, you you need some help with that? No, they're dead. And yet God made us alive in him. That's the story of the scriptures. Now, in that, my guess is if you start thinking through this, maybe you start to feel a little bit nervous. Can it really be that way? Can it really be? That seems too easy to say it's grace plus nothing. Like, is that it? Like, isn't that going to lead to all sorts of abuse of God's grace? And J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, addressed this. He says, listen, Those who suppose that the doctrine of God's grace tends to encourage moral laxity, he says are this, they are simply showing that in the most literal sense, they do not know what they are talking about. And he says this, for love awakens love in return, and love, once awakened, desires to give pleasure. Like, if you become a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you're perfect in this life, but what it does mean is God's going to begin to work and give you new desires And you're going to want to honor God. And you're going to want to obey him. And you're going to want to pay attention to how he set things up to best flourish and function. All right? You're not going to want to just go and say, oh, cool, I've got this grace card. And now I can just go and abuse that. That proves that you don't actually understand grace. You don't appreciate what Jesus has done for you. But true grace, when it's understood that it's grace plus nothing, I can't contribute. It floors us. It humbles us. It causes us to worship. We now are reveling in what King Jesus has done. And we're like, what do you need? How how can I play my part? How can you use me? We become open-handed with the things that the Lord has given to us. It doesn't lead to moral laxity. If it does, you haven't understood the grace of King Jesus. And so then Peter says this. He says, as he continues, he uses this imagery. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting... God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's like, why are you loading people up with the law after you've talked to them about grace? And the imagery would have been very familiar for people back then. It might be lost on us, but the picture that you see in the background there, if you can see it, it's a little dim, all right, is of a yoke. And it's literally, it's got these two hoops and it's where two animals, like oxen, would be placed as they're out plowing and they're being used for farming, all right? And the animals would have this across their back and their heads would go in this and it's so that they would be together. But they are bearing this particular weight. It's this yoke. It's like this thing that's kind of trapped you in this. He's like, you're loading people up. You're burdening people. Religion always burdens and the gospel always frees us from burdens. 
this expectation that we've got to do more, that we've got to perform, that somehow it's Jesus plus whatever we add to the mix. That is a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from one who's not just, you know, sort of mildly interested in your life. It's a lie from an enemy who is seeking to devour you, who doesn't want you to experience the grace, doesn't want more people to experience God's grace. And so Peter asked this question, why are you loading people up? He knows Jesus spoke these words in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And Jesus says, so take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So he's like, listen, you can either be tethered to the law, you can either be tethered to this viewpoint, this worldview that says you've got to do more, or you can be tethered to me. And if you find yourself tethered to me, I actually bring you life. And he says, so take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's not saying that there's no yoke, but what he is saying is that I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, how can that be? It's because Jesus took the ultimate burden, the ultimate yoke when he went to the cross and the full weight of our sin, our rebellion was placed on him. That was the ultimate yoke. And because Jesus died in your place and in my place and three days later rose again, defeating Satan, death, right? All of that. When he defeated the enemy, now there's this yoke that we can come alongside. We can be tethered to Jesus, but it doesn't crush us because he's already paid for it all. It's actually how we would find life. And so what Peter is asking the people there and what we're being asked this morning is this, like in what ways are we adding things? Are you helping, and I, are we helping to create a, a culture of, of grace, of an experience with Jesus about the, the easiness, the lightness of his yoke, or are we loading people up? Are you adding burdens? And I'm not saying you're doing this intentionally or that I'm doing it intentionally, but we have to examine our own hearts. This isn't just to look back a couple thousand years ago. I can't believe those crazy people that they would add circumcision to it. The reality is the human heart is always going out thinking, okay, yes, I get it, Jesus, he died on the cross for my sins, but I think I need to do more. Or we look down our noses at people who they don't maybe see things the same way as we do. And so maybe think through this. It's not an exhaustive list, but like if you were to fill out this equation, it's grace plus like you fill in the blank. You think that this is needed to prove yourself as a true follower of Jesus, to prove your salvation, for you to um, feel better about yourself as compared to other people. When we do this, when we add anything to Jesus' grace, we're just like these religious folks a couple thousand years ago. And so look at some of the things. Again, not an exhaustive list, but do you think it's, it's all about God's grace, but you gotta make sure you're serving the poor. If you're really saved, that's what it looks like. Or you gotta be aligned with the right political party. Maybe it's things like you gotta have the right theology. So it's like, yep, grace, but I've gotta have this locked down over here. Maybe it's the right type of education. Like, oh no, a true follower of Jesus, they certainly send their kids to public school. No, you definitely do private school, Christian school, homeschool. You want to know our position at Crosspoint? We're pro-school, all right? That's where we land, just in case you're wondering, all right? Very controversial position, all right? At the end of the day, like, we can make something ultimate. We can add things to it. What about this? Just like, hey, you got to have a strong work ethic. you got to 
contribute. You've got to earn. You've got to do. You've got to accomplish. You've got to achieve your goals. Maybe it's grace plus you've got to be frugal or you've got to be generous or you look at your church attendance or you, got, you look at you know, Bible reading and prayer. Right? We're doing a whole class on prayer and fasting. But if you think for a moment that it's Jesus' grace plus those things that get you in a right standing with, with God, you've missed it. We're back in the category of religious math that's grace plus something else equals salvation. And that is not what Jesus came to bring us. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 goes on this, this, there's this great dialogue where he's talking about people again that are trying to add things to the gospel. And the verses that precede what I'm about to read, he has just laid out this long list of all of his qualifications. He's like, listen, man. If you want to play that game about religious observance and who has the right pedigree and all this, he's like, you got to look at my resume. You think yours is impressive? And he just starts listing out that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like he had the right schooling, the right background from the right tribe, the right education, did all the right things, kept the law. He's like, you want to throw down with that? Like, well, let's go right now. He's like, I will beat you in all of those categories. And here's what he says after that. He says, but whatever gain I had from all of those things that sometimes we look to, he says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's the same issue that we're seeing here in Acts 15. He's saying it's not grace plus our pedigree. It's not grace plus all of these particular things that we tend to build kind of a religious identity on. He's like it's grace and that's it. It's I've trusted in Jesus. Now, does that compel him to live in a whole new way? Does that cause him to, to, to want to put on the new self? Yes, absolutely and amen to all of those things. But in order to be a Christian, it's not clean yourself up in order to be welcomed by God. Jesus offers his grace to a group of people that we can't clean ourselves up. Again, dead people can't clean themselves up. And there's this invitation, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? Are you trying to add something to it? And Paul literally would say, anything that I had on my resume, anything that was impressive, he's like, it's rubbish. It's excrement is the language that he's using here. No one thinks that's very impressive, right? You try and get rid of that as quickly as you can. He's like, why would I say it's Jesus or his grace plus this pile of rubbish that I have here? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what we're doing. And so when the Jews were saying it's grace plus circumcision, Paul's like, Really what you're saying is it's grace plus rubbish. That's what you're trying to do. And that doesn't make any sense. It's not what Jesus came to offer. And so look with me at verse 12. There's not much said here by Paul and Barnabas, but it, it simply tells us, and all the assembly fell silent after Peter, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them, God done through them among the Gentiles. So they just kind of retell the stories. So they have an opportunity to speak. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, gets up. And James is one even who some people would begin to regard even as the guy. They almost might expect James to get up and be like, oh, he's going to get us back on track. He's going to talk about the merits of circumcision. He's going to make sure that, that we get that in the fine print of the new church bylaws, basically. That's what's happening here, right? James is the one who wrote the book of James, all right? Um, he talks about faith without works is dead. Like you might expect 
All right, oh, is, is he going to make sure that that gets in there? But look at his response in 13 to 21. Because even as James would later talk about faith and good works, he's not going against any of these things. Like your good works show that there's been a work of grace in your life, but they don't earn you anything. They're not what saves you. They're simply the outflow of an encounter that you've had with the living God. And so in verse 13, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another name for Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. This is him in just a summary fashion saying, The prophets of old, the Old Testament that you guys would know so well, he's saying, they all agree. None of them would disagree with anything that Peter and Paul and Barnabas have been saying. They all point to this reality that the Jews were going to be included, that it's always been a story of God's grace. People sometimes miss that. They read through the Old Testament and they think, well, God was really cranky and angry and now we've got this new God. And then No, it's the same God. God's always been a God of grace. God gives the law. Well, when did he give it? After he liberated his people from Egypt, from slavery, and then he gives them the law. Not to earn anything, he's liberated them already. He's like, this is how you've been created to live. Do this. It's always been a story of God's grace. And so then he begins to quote from prophet Amos, and he says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And then look at this phrase here, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. It's like the story has always been about God's inclusion, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles, for those that have trusted in him. And it's a story of God's grace. And so then he begins to put a proposal for it. He's like, guys, here's how I think we move forward. And he says this, therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I mean, that idea of turn means that those that have repented of their sin, who've trusted in Jesus, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, we'll unpack that here in a moment in this last section. But what James is laying out for us is this. What should the response be? What would a gospel response be as there are now, there's now this great diversity of people? There's more people from more cultures meeting Jesus. There are Jews that are meeting Jesus. They've got their particular culture and their backstory and the things that they've revered. And you've got people from other parts of the world that they don't know any of these sort of things. So what would it look like to have a gospel response? He's helping us answer the question this way. What does it look like to hold tightly to the truth of the gospel, to a Christian truth, to really be willing to fight about that, to say, no, this is central. If that thing is, if that thing is threatened, like we need to seek to choke out those lies. This is no time to be passive. We've got to hold tightly to Christian truth. And also, what does it look like to love our brother and sister in Christ who might have different perspectives and backgrounds and things that they're bringing among secondary matters? What does that actually look like? And so verses 22 to 29, we'll close with this. There's this demonstration of grace. They've been fighting to make sure grace stays central. And now they're showing us a way forward of like, what does it look like when this gets demonstrated, when this gets lived out? Because there's a concern that they don't want the church to split into different factions. They're this call to live as family, not just like a family, but you actually are family, your brothers and sisters 
in Christ. And you're going to come from all sorts of different backgrounds. And what does it look like to keep the gospel central, but then also to exhibit and showcase Christian love? And if you think for a moment that that's a story that was unique to 2,000 years ago, like we need to open our eyes, right? Like that's the reality here today. By God's grace, there are more and more backgrounds and stories and cultures represented, differences on secondary matters, but there's this call, we'll fight for the truth of the gospel. And then what does it look like to have Christian love amongst one another? And so 22 to 29, they begin to put a plan together. They compose a letter. Here's how it goes. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And here's the contents of the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us. Now notice, they're including these people what they would, even though they're fighting them about their theology, they're like, these are brothers and sisters. They've gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, so there's this unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So let's talk as we close this out. There's a fight over what is central. Now, at first glance, if you're reading that, all right, and you see these lines, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, it might seem... Are they just adding these things to the message? But these things are being spoken of as a response to the gospel to love your neighbor, to love your brother and sister in Christ. It's a recognition of the challenges that are coming to this new church with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. In no way, shape, or form are the apostles, the elders, James, any of them, they are not putting together a plan that says, all right, well, you don't have to be circumcised, but you at least have to do these things in order to be saved. Like, no, no, you are saved. And what we're calling you to is this. For one, to pay attention at a couple levels I think there's a couple different things that are going on. It says, from, you know, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. It's a big picture call to say, avoid idolatry. And in particular, these things that are listed about, about animals and food and all of this, for the Jewish people, these were things that were very particular. It's a calling, will you be sensitive to your brother and sister in Christ who their conscience tells them, like, I don't know that I can eat that or that I should eat that, or it throws them off. Their whole practice, their entire life has looked one way. And so they're trying to figure out how to live in this new reality. And so you don't necessarily need to make a bacon sandwich in front of them right now. Like, this is kind of what it's talking about, right? So some of those things, it's saying, hey, will you respect them enough? Will you love them enough? Will you die to some of your freedoms that you have in order so that you might actually flourish together? What does it look like to seek the good of somebody else? This is not earning you anything. And so it's pay attention, all right? Don't give in to idolatry. Will you sacrifice? Will you be sensitive to the, the needs 
the perspectives of your brothers and sisters about some of these secondary matters. And then big picture, there's a couple things going on here. Like there's a call to purity, to holiness, abstain from sexual immorality. And in particular, it's a way that the apostles are talking about avoid immoral worship. We've looked at this throughout the book of Acts. Oftentimes in these Gentile pagan cities, worship of the supposed gods in the area was tied to cult, like temple prostitution and things like that. And like, no, 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 that's not how this church operates, right? But can you imagine just all the practice, all the theological knots and practices that had to be untangled? They're like, listen, that's not what you're called to as the church. These are areas to grow in. Abstain from these things and you'll do well. And so this isn't this message of like, all right, it's grace, you got a free pass, go do whatever you want. It's like, no, 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 no. The grace of Jesus Christ, that is what saves you. It's the grace of Jesus that sanctifies you and grows you. And here's some particular challenges that these, these people in this context were facing. Some of those are not what we face. I haven't had any discussions this week necessarily with about you know, food that's been sacrificed to idols or how much blood is in your burger that you cooked and that, those sort of things. Maybe, all right? But, but let's be honest, sexual immorality, that's a huge deal. That's always been a huge deal. What does it look like for the church to showcase how God has created us to be and how one can actually glorify God through sexuality when it's in the right context? These are all issues that have that've been around. And so the calling is for this gospel math, right? It's the grace of Jesus plus nothing. Like I got nothing that I bring to the table. I'm clinging to the grace of Jesus. I read Galatians chapter 5 earlier where Paul, remember he was a little cranked up. He's like, I wish they'd just go ahead and emasculate themselves, right? The very following verses are these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, but you, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul cares deeply for the unity of the church. Jesus cares deeply for the unity of the church. So Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And that's part of the way that we bear witness is when there's a unity that's taking place amongst a great diversity of people with different backgrounds and perspectives and secondary matters. But we keep the gospel as center. That's what we're unified around. And Paul's saying, listen, your freedoms, don't use that as license. Use it to actually serve people, to love one another. So it begs the question as we wrap up, okay, so how can we love like this? Because that's hard to do. That sounds great in theory, but how can you and I actually love people? How can we have this Christian truth that we hold too tightly and also this Christian love, that we demonstrate that in very practical ways? How can we actually love like this? And I think we get great insight when the Apostle Paul and to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 2, he addresses this issue of circumcision. Look at the words that he says. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's like, wait, what, what is this saying? We have to understand what it means by the circumcision of Christ for us to be the kind of people that will love people well. We have to understand what Jesus actually endured. 
And what is being spoken of here is language of covenant. And the way covenants would work in ancient times is that you literally would have a physical representation of what would happen to you if you broke the covenant. So there were things like this, that sometimes you'd, you'd make a covenant with somebody and you'd literally, you'd take an animal and you'd cut it in half, all right? And you say, well, if, hey, brother, if I break the covenant, let it be done to me like it's been done to this animal. It's very bloody and violent, right? Circumcision. There's this cutting off. It's a discarding. It's a separating, all right? There's a cleansing component to it, but it also is this cutting off, and it's part of the covenant. And what was being communicated is this. If you break covenant with your God, if you, seek, if you cease to follow him, if you commit idolatry, if you give your life to something else, it will be like this skin that is being cut off. You will be cut off. It won't just be a part of you. You yourself will be cut off. And then what does this say? The circumcision of Christ, what is that speaking of? It's speaking of the cross. That the ultimate cutting off was Jesus himself going to the cross and saying, you've been rebellious, you've been wicked, you guys have all turned and done the wrong thing. All of us as humanity, this is our story. And what should be done to us is to be cut off and discarded and disposed of. And yet, instead, Jesus goes to the cross. And the circumcision of Christ is him being cut off. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being cut off from the Father so that you and I can be welcomed in. The ultimate price that he paid so that you and I might be brothers and sisters in Christ, united in the gospel, and now able to love and serve one another when we see Jesus being cut off for us. When that grips your heart, there will be a new willingness to serve and to love other people. He's like, look what Christ has done for me. Look at the love that he's extended to me. It might be hard to love somebody, but it's not that sort of costly love. Jesus paid the ultimate price. And when that grips our hearts, we're suddenly able to love other people. When we realize it's difficult to love us. You may walk around thinking, oh, it's easy to love me. No, no, no. It was hard to love you. So hard that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, had to die for you. He had to die for me. We're difficult people to love. And yet... Jesus did it willingly. The circumcision of Christ. He was willing to be cut off for you and for me. So let me close us in prayer and give you some time to respond. Perhaps the Spirit is bringing things to mind. What do you need to confess? What thing have you sought to add to the grace of Jesus? Praying that through our service remaining time that we will celebrate the grace of God. That it's Jesus plus nothing is how we get everything. And I would ask us to be a people that are committed in light of the gospel, in response to the gospel, not to earn anything, but that we would be committed to the Lord Jesus, that we'd be committed to his church, that we'd be committed to love and serve one another. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, your willingness to take the punishment that we deserved. We should have been cut off. We should have been forsaken. Instead, you were forsaken in our place. We thank you that you've made it possible for us to experience salvation, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And it's not our doing. It is a gift from you. And it is not by works. And so, God, I pray that you would bring those truths home to us, that our hearts might rejoice and new and fresh ways for those that might not have ever experienced your grace. I pray today, God, would be the day that they would repent of their sin, that they would trust in you and the finished work of Jesus, this free offer of salvation. 
And God, for those of us that walked in here this morning as followers of you, would you deepen us in our understanding and our appreciation and our worship of you. And so hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.